10 verses of this chapter. And I would say that next to Genesis chapter 3, this is one of the saddest chapters in the entire Old Testament. Jerusalem's going to fall. The people of God are going to fall. We're going to talk about that after we read and pray together. But Jeremiah's accounting of this in chapter 39 is without emotion. He simply gives us the facts of the fall of Jerusalem. And I don't know if it's because his heart can't bear to go with what he's experiencing here. But if you want to read the emotion-filled account of this, that's in the book of Lamentations, where Jeremiah weeps and grieves and has an emotional breakdown over what's about to transpire in these ten verses. I'm going to read from Jeremiah 39, beginning in verse 1. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle of the gate. Nergal, Sar, Ezer, Samgar, Nebu, Sar, Sechem, the Rab, Saris, Nergal, Sar, Ezer, the Rab, Mag, with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city by night, by the way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls, and they went towards the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebu Zaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. And Buzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Let's pray again. Father, it is terrifying to see your hand of judgment fall on the city of Jerusalem. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we would know that you do this for the good of your kingdom, for the good of your glory, for the good of your people. That even as we watch this wreckage, we can believe with Jeremiah that the steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases and it never comes to an end. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, these are ten of the most catastrophic verses in the Old Testament. It looks like, from this vantage point, God's rescue plan for the world has been undone. That the promises he made to the world have been broken. It looks like somebody lit a lamp and then covered it with a basket, and there is now nothing but darkness. 
Now, when you read the story of the Old Testament, you know that God had begun his rescue plan for the world in Genesis. We know that God creates the world. He creates man. Man rebels against God. They snub God. They want nothing to do with his laws and his rule. And Adam and Eve, they run from him. And God, then and there, initiates a rescue plan. The fall is Genesis chapter 3. We expect that Jesus would be born in Genesis chapter 4, but he's not, right? Because God has a plan to first grow a nation through whom Jesus will be born so that that nation, the nation of Israel, could be ready to receive the Messiah and preach the Messiah to the world. He was going to create a nation so that all of the nations of the earth could be blessed through Israel. And so from our vantage point, you begin a very slow story of building this nation of Israel, this nation of blessing. Piece by piece, we see the nation come together. God visits Abraham and he promises him, you're going to be a great nation. God delivers the people from Egypt through Moses and then he gives them laws by which they can know him and understand him. God then delivers the people through the warrior Joshua. He enters the land, he conquers the land, and so now you have a people and a law with land for them until he raises up King David and promises David, you're always going to have a king on your throne. And then Solomon, through whom the temple is built, and all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, a thousand years since Abraham, you have all the pieces in place for a nation that is going to be a blessing to the nations. You've got the people of Israel. You've got land. You've got a priesthood. You've got a kingship. You've got a temple. You have relative peace from surrounding nations. When Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, surely he had in mind Jerusalem. This is God's plan for Jerusalem. But it wasn't to last. Jerusalem on earth, the Jerusalem that David ruled, that was only ever a shadow of the heavenly Jerusalem. And if we've learned anything in our Old Testaments, we've learned that the shadow is not the real thing. And it will always, always disappoint. Israel... She abandons God. She rejects God. She doesn't want to do what God says. She doesn't want to go to God through the temple as God commanded. She snubs the creator of the world. And she becomes greedy and ruthless with the very people that God said, I want you to show mercy and justice to. Israel runs from God. And it's like the branches of this once great vine that used to bear fruit bears no fruit. They've become dry and sickly and void of fruit. And God is the vine dresser who has come to Jerusalem with his pruning shears. The year 586 B.C. is a red-letter day in Israel's history. That's a, that's a year that Israel will never forget as long as she lives. We've been dwelling in this world for a little bit now. We know that uh, Babylon has come against Israel. He, Nebuchadnezzar has raised Israel to the ground. He's besieged the city of Jerusalem. That's the last holdout for Israel. And that siege has gone on for 18 months. 
And that was a gruesome 18 months. You're a people locked inside of a city. You've got uh, the Babylonians surrounding you. And so the city of Jerusalem had run out of food. They were beginning to eat things that you wouldn't normally eat. The people were starting to get sick. They were starting to hurt each other and take advantage of each other. It was a gruesome, gruesome day in that siege. And all the while, while she was under siege, Jeremiah was sent by God to preach to the people, repent of your sins, turn from them, turn towards God, and what you must do in this moment is surrender to the Babylonians. That is your repentance. You give up, you surrender, you turn yourselves over to the Babylonians, and you will find mercy. The people reject what Jeremiah says. In fact, they throw him into prison. Zedekiah holds out and he thinks, I can withstand. I will not give in to the Babylonians. And he plays out the siege until its bitter end. We read halfway into our chapter that Babylon is able to break through the walls. They're able to set up a camp right in between the breached walls. And when they do that, and when Zedekiah sees that, the very man who had made his people stand till the bitter end, he now escapes out of the back door. He runs away from his people. He abandons them at the moment that they need him most. But the Babylonians pursue him. They catch him. They bring him back to face Nebuchadnezzar eye to eye. And Zedekiah's fate is worse than his brother Jehoiakim's. In front of Zedekiah, they kill his kids, they kill his nobles, they blind him, they put him in shackles, and they send him off to Babylon, where he will rot in prison. After that, Nebuchadnezzar's captain of the guard, he comes to the city, and he begins to systematically lay waste to Jerusalem. He burns the palace, he burns the nobles' houses, he burns the temple. He begins to break down the wall around Jerusalem so that she won't be able to defend herself again. And then he takes the most prized people of the city, those with skills, those with craftsmanship, and he exiles them to Babylon so that the best and the brightest are no longer in Jerusalem, but they have joined him in Babylon. You know, there's actually archaeological evidence that you can see that supports this destruction of Jerusalem. We actually can see that this destruction was done. It's in the records in Babylon, and it's in the historic record of uncovering what has happened in Jerusalem. And you can watch that this was massive destruction for the city. If you had been a poor, landless, 5th century Israelite... Imagine what you would have seen after Babylon was gone. You look around this city, this once great city, this once great palace, this once world-renowned temple, and all you see is waste. There's rubble, there's burning, there's ashes. The wall has been broken down. You're no longer protected from the nations around you. The city that was once full and thriving with people, it's now empty because they've been exiled. It would have been very eerie to stand in the center of Jerusalem and see nothing but ash and waste and emptiness. It's just quiet in the city that has been destroyed. What do we make of a scene like this? 
how do we get our minds and hearts around just this incredible destruction? How do we think about those like Zedekiah who resisted God, they rejected God, they wanted nothing to do with God, and then this awful fate befalls them? Or what do we think about people like Jeremiah's friends who really tried to follow God and listen to God and pursue God, and they still end up with a wrecked city and in exile? How do we understand what has happened here in Jerusalem? Well, this morning I want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. I want to let it interpret itself and speak for itself. And I think there is a profound connection between Jeremiah chapter 39 and John chapter 15. If you would, keep your finger in Jeremiah 39 and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John 15, Jesus is speaking and he speaks this very profound parable for the church. And I'm just going to read these first two verses, but I really think it's helpful to see them for yourself. This is John 15, verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch of mine that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Okay, so Jesus is speaking in very simple terms to us right now. And he says, look, there are two kinds of branches. You've got branches that don't bear any fruit. And then you've got branches that bear fruit. Those are the only two kinds of branches. There's no third branch. It's either a branch that bears fruit or a branch that does not bear any fruit at all. Let's think about the branches that don't bear fruit. There is such thing as a branch that appears to be connected to Jesus that has no life in it whatsoever. I mean, this branch may come to church. This branch may have grown up in the church. This branch may have the Apostles' Creed memorized. This branch may have been baptized, maybe even twice, once as an infant, once later in life, just to make sure. This branch has some credentials surrounding it. But in it, there is no life. The heart of this branch is dry towards God. They don't love God. They don't truly repent of their sin and seek to turn from it. They don't grow in God. They don't change in God. They don't pursue and seek to imitate God. And what Jesus is telling us in John chapter 15 is that this kind of branch may fool every single person around them. They may fool their spouse. They may fool their kids. They may fool their pastor. They may fool their life group. But the Heavenly Father isn't fooled because he's the vine dresser. And he walks through the garden looking for dead branches. He looks for them. And when he finds them, Jesus says... He takes them away. That's a euphemism for he throws those branches into hell. Look at verse 6. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
promise you, you would rather come face to face with Nebuchadnezzar in Jeremiah's day than come face to face with God on Judgment Day. All Nebuchadnezzar can do, all he has the power to do, is kill your family, blind you and torture you, throw you in prison where you will rot until you die. And that's it. That's all he can do. His power is over. I love when the psalmist says again and again as an act of faith, Lord, what can man do to me? What can man do to me? Because I want to answer the psalmist, it feels like man can do a whole lot. I mean, it feels like man can do a ton of damage, but the psalmist is saying what Jesus is saying, eternally speaking, that's nothing. What Nebuchadnezzar can do, that's nothing. God will judge the dead branch forever. On that fateful, sweltering July day in 586 B.C., a lot of dead branches came face to face with God in judgment, and they rued the day they rejected Him. I wonder if anybody sitting here is wondering to themselves, am I that branch? Am I a dead branch? I mean, I'm here, and I want to believe this stuff, but is there life in my heart? Do I bear fruit? Or is this just a show for me right now? If that's you, I wonder if you would be willing to tell someone that. That takes a world of courage, especially within the church, to go to a neighbor, go to a friend, go to a life group member, go to your pastor and say, I don't know this for sure, but I might be a dead branch. I don't see life. I don't feel life. I don't know if there's life. I'm going to pray today that if that's you, and you even have an inkling of doubt whether you are a dead branch or not, that God would give you courage to say something to someone. That's the Spirit of God in you, moving you to see truth in your heart. And that is the most eternally important thing that you will do today, tomorrow, for the rest of your life. God, give us courage to ask, are we a dead branch? Well, Jesus says there's two branches. There are branches that appear to have life, but they don't. They're dead. But then there's another kind of branch, and these are branches that do bear fruit. This is the only other kind of branch there is. This is the normal Christian life. This is how God intends our faith to be. If you're a born-again believer in Christ, Jesus says you are a fruit-bearing branch. Now you might, as you sit here and hear John 15, not exactly feel like this awesome fruit-bearing branch that has tongue to show for itself. And that's okay, you're probably not. I don't feel that way, I'm not. But Jesus is saying this is what the Spirit does. This is his bread and butter. He lives inside of you 
to connect you to the vine, which is Jesus, which nourishes us so that he can bear the fruit of the Spirit. Then we'll look to God and we'll see he's actually bearing in me love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control. These things are being born in me because the Spirit is there working in Jesus, connected to the vine, and I see this fruit. But Jesus says there's actually more here in the garden than just Jesus is the vine and the Spirit is the bearer of fruit. Our Heavenly Father is in the garden too, and He's the vine dresser, and it's not just dead branches that He uses His shears on. He has them. And verse 2 says, every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes. Did you catch that? Every branch, every branch, he prunes. It's not just the weak branches. It's not the strong branches. It's not just the single branches. It's not just the married branches. It's not the rich branches. It's not the poor branches. Every fruit-bearing, Jesus-abiding branch gets pruned. Everybody gets pruned. And my first reaction is... Jesus, what's the deal? Why would you prune me? I'm bearing fruit. I'm not like these branches over here. They don't bear any fruit. And I'm not like these branches over here because I know I got more fruit than they do. Why would you prune me? I'm doing the best that I can, and I don't want to be pruned. And Jesus answers in verse 2, Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. He goes on in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus just gave us a, a page of the Father's playbook. He revealed God's agenda for us in suffering. When we suffer, when we experience hardship, we can open up John 15 and we can be reminded that the Father does this in us, because he wants to bear more fruit, which will confirm in our hearts that we're disciples, so that the Father himself might gain glory. That's what he's doing. That's his agenda. That's why it feels like he's hurting us, because he wants to do these good things in us. No wonder James says something as outlandish as, Count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When James says that, I want to slap him. <laughs> who says something like that? Especially to someone who is suffering. If comfort is my God, there's no joy to be had in trials, right? If comfort is the thing that I have lusted after, that I've protected, that I've built a wall around, that I want more than anything else in the world. If comfort is my God, I have no idea what James is saying to me because I'm losing the thing I've worked my entire life to protect. But if the vine dresser is my God, I know that God is not finished with me until he has pruned me, born fruit in me, confirmed in my heart that I am actually a believer, and he has gained glory. 
And when I know that about the vine dresser and the suffering I endure, it makes me happy. Not because I'm a masochist and I enjoy the suffering, but because I know why my Heavenly Father allows me to suffer. He's got grand and beautiful plans for me. I know from John 15 that if I suffer, the Heavenly Father doesn't hate me. He's not displeased with me. He allows me to suffer because He wants to prune me and grow me into the image of His Son. Do you know this is precisely what God did to His Son, Jesus? And if He did it to Jesus, surely if He loves us, He'll do it to us? Hebrews 5 Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now that's a really odd verse to me because we know Jesus is perfect. And we know he obeyed in every situation. So how could Jesus be perfected? How could he learn obedience if he already had it? What is Jesus gaining in the suffering that he didn't have before the suffering? Up until Jesus suffered, his obedience was perfect, but it was untested. It was perfect, it was flawless, but it had not yet endured hardship. And Satan could have actually said of Jesus what he said of Job, of course Jesus loves you, because everything goes right for him. You love him, you adore him, you commune with him, you bless him in every way. Of course he loves you because you love him and you bless him. But the moment you turn your hand on him, he will curse you and die. That's what Satan said about Job. He could have said that about Jesus. And so in Jesus' birth, his temptation, his persecution, his torture, his crucifixion, His obedience was tested and perfected by the mind dresser. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. And God takes that same relationship and he brings it to the nation of Israel. And we read in our chapter one big, massive, nationwide pruning. God walks through the city of Jerusalem and he sees some branches that bear no fruit and he casts them aside and he sees some branches that are bearing fruit and he prunes them so that they will bear more fruit. That's what he does in Jeremiah 39. And if the Father does this for Jesus and the Father does this for Jerusalem, he will surely do this for us. He's going to prune us. He's going to prune you and I. If he loves us, he will prune us. And he will snip away the dead parts of us. And it's going to hurt. God's going to do that to each and every one of us. God is also going to do that to us as a church body. He's going to walk through our midst and he's going to prune us. The dead he casts away, the living he snips and prunes, and it hurts so that he can bear more from And if he does it to us and he does it to the church, he's going to do it to the global church. He's going to bring suffering to the global church. He's going to walk amongst our midst and he's going to prune us so that we will bear more fruit. And he is going to pursue with reckless abandon. In our lives and in our church, fruit 
and faith and glory in this garden of salvation. Let's pray to you. Father, I'm afraid to ask for pruning because I don't want it. I want a different way to grow in you. I want a different way to be sanctified. I want a different way to throw down my sin and turn from it and run to you. I want a different way to learn gentleness and patience and peace with your people. But you tell us plainly, there is no other way. 